There are 11 active players who have scored 60 points. Harden's done it four times. Dame three, Cat, Kyrie, Melo, Steph, Booker, Bron, Tatum, Clay, and Kemba. We have big men winning the three-point contest. We have six foot three and under guard scoring 60. The versatility that this game is displaying is unlike anything we've ever seen. My 10-year anniversary of upsetting Duke is this year. That was the start of everything, right? Like, the win against Duke kind of put me on the main stage. It gave me a chance to play against a bunch of NBA players. It gave me a chance to play against a historically relevant team from arguably the greatest college coach of all time and arguably the most fun stage of college sports. So you kind of put all those things together. I think that put me in a different type of light. I think that Joker deserves the MVP this season. I think he'll probably win it. But Giannis is the sleeper. Giannis' team is very good. He could win back-to-back. -back. His numbers are very similar to previous years in which he has won MVP. Welcome to the 133rd episode of Pull Up. That's right, 133 episodes. We are climbing. I'm recording this on March 16th, but on this date, March 17th, 2018, Houston Rockets point guard Chris Paul reached 2,000 career steals. He joined Hall of Famers Gary Payton, John Stockton, and Jason Kidd as the only players with 8,000 assists, 2,000 steals in their career. Chris Paul obviously now has over 10,000 assists, which is crazy. And I want to talk about Chris Paul for a second, because not only has he passed the torch to me for uh, MBPA president, but he's passed a lot of knowledge to a lot of other players. He's shown longevity, the ability to obviously, you know, build a career around passing, playing defense, running the pick and roll, mastering the mid-range game. And he's also done some great stuff in our community for everyone. But I think Chris Paul is definitely top five point guards of all time. You could argue a lot of different players. Obviously, you got the Magics of the world. You got the Stocktons of the world. You got Gary Payton, who I mentioned. You have a lot of players who have played this game at an elite level. But I think based on what he's been able to accomplish on and off the court, the longevity, him going from team to team, right? Taking the Oklahoma City Thunder to the playoffs. Being an injury away from probably going to the finals and winning the finals with the Houston Rockets. Now with the Suns, taking them to the finals, having the Suns playing some of their best basketball ever since Steve Nash was there, and potentially being a team who can win a championship this year. I think his longevity and ability to play through multiple errors locks him in as top five point guards of all time. You could debate you know, where he's at in that list, but that's just kind of how I feel. Want to update everyone on what I've been up to, obviously. If you follow me and you follow the NBA, you realize I was in health and safety protocols. I had an interesting situation where I've been playing, obviously, trying to play well for our team, trying to get us to the playoffs. Things were going well. I was on a road trip, and I didn't feel quite like myself. Generally, I sleep with a winter hat on in, indoors at times when it's cold out or when I'm just not feeling well. And... I slept with a winter hat on. I had my thermostat on 80 degrees, which is very, very high, but I'm also generally cold. And I was sweating all night. I was sweating in my sleep. I kept waking up, tossing turners, probably the worst sleep I've had in the last five years. And that's including some great nights in Las Vegas. And I just felt terrible. I woke up, took some DayQuil, got in the steam room, and I ended up playing the game. And I joked with some of my teammates, I was playing with a cough drop in my mouth because I was kind of coughing and stuff. But I thought that I had a sinus infection, just like a bad sinus infection because I have terrible allergies. Fast forward, you know, I'm having congestion issues. I'm having, you know, deep coughs, still getting headaches, just feeling more tired. And long story short, I ended up testing when I got back from the road trip. 
uh, my mom was coming in town. I wanted to make sure that I didn't pass or anything, and I tested positive. And I was out for a bit. A lot of naps, a lot of sleep, a lot of tea, um, a lot of different medications uh, that kind of helped me get over uh, the, the the virus. And I'm thankful, obviously, I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted, and, and all those things. And I know there's a lot of people that have gone through a lot of stuff uh, involving COVID in terms of you know, death, serious illness, and beyond. So I'm thankful that I was able to kind of push through. And I was only out about, you know, four or five days. I ended up playing. I got cleared. I got my second negative the morning of the Phoenix Suns game. So I waited in the car for my second negative, and then I was able to go through shoot-around and practice with the team. But the moral of the story is that it was a unique time in my life because it was the first time, you know, in a long time where I just, I had nothing to do. Like, I couldn't go to practice. Couldn't leave my room. I was, I'm still in a hotel. And I was just here thinking, like in my thoughts, reading books, obviously kind of watching TV shows. I caught up on Euphoria. I caught up on Power. I was watching, you know, every TV show that people were sending me and recommending, calling my family, checking in. But I kind of thought to myself, like, wow, like to imagine doing like 10 or 15 days of just like isolation, not being able to go outside, things of that nature. I know it has to be tough, but I'm thankful I was able to kind of overcome that quickly. My CT levels were over 30, which, you know, was pretty good generally. For those that don't know, I was told by the doctors and by our trainers that generally when you're at a 37, you're negative. So I was, by day two, I was at like 30, and then I was 33, then I was 34, 35, and then I was over 37 uh, for the negative. But I am back. I am playing. Uh, we did have a good amount of people who ended up testing positive on our staff, so we're going through contact tracing. And for those that aren't familiar with the NBA right now, if you're unvaccinated, you're subject to daily testing. If you are vaccinated, testing is based on symptoms now. However, if there is an outbreak on your team, your team is subject to testing, daily testing, depending on which department is is infected. And we have some staff members that are infected. So our staff are subject to daily testing. And then we have monitored testing based on proximity. So I had to basically take a call with the NBA to talk about you know, my day, I walked them through an entire day on a game day, an entire day on a non-game day. And I had to tell them everybody that I came in contact with, who my lockers by, did I eat on the plane? Did I eat in the locker room before the game? Who do I lift with? Who stretches me pre-game? Who am I on the court with for my 15-minute workout? And everybody that I was in contact with was subject to testing and is going through the testing protocol now. So that's just kind of an update on where we're at on that. Looking at some of the things that we're going to talk about on the podcast today. I have to talk about how excellent everyone's been playing, obviously, but how excellent a few players have played, scoring over 50 points, scoring 60 points in a game, which is absurd. The league has been on fire lately. Guys are turning it up with only 13 or 14 games left. I'm going to discuss the NFL, free agency. There's a lot going on there. My Browns could be doing some things. Obviously, the Saints could be doing some things, which is you know now one of my new teams since I'm here in New Orleans. I got to go to some Saints games. So make sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. Hit us with a five-star review. Share the show with a friend and tell that friend to tell a friend. Follow us on Instagram at Twitter and Pull Up Pod for fresh content all season long. Obviously, everyone's been watching the NBA, and a couple nights ago, Kyrie Irving scored 60 points, but it's more so the way he scored his 60 points against the Orlando Magic. He had 41 points by the half. He had 60 points with about eight minutes left in the game, and for comparison's sake, when Kobe scored his 81, he was on essentially the same pace. 
However, the Brooklyn Nets were up by, you know, 25, 30 points. There was no need for him to, to still be in the game, and they ended up pulling him. But his ability to score is unlike anything we've ever seen. And I'll get into Kyrie a little bit later, but I just want to talk about how well everyone is playing in the NBA right now. Carl Anthony Towns also scored 60 points. He had 32 points in a quarter. I think he made 15 of his 16 free throws. I think he hit seven or eight three-pointers. The versatility that this game is displaying is unlike anything we've ever seen. We have big men winning the three-point contest. We have six foot three and under guard scoring 60. My former teammate and homie, Dame, has scored 63 times, which is crazy to think about. Like that's that's absurd. But I just want to touch on this briefly. Like Kyrie Irving, for instance. I, I watched the Brooklyn Nets game, the the re, the replay of the game, the flow of it, the offense, the strategy. He was scoring his points within the flow of the game, which is hard to do. And I had this talk with Chris Paul earlier today. Same talk with Kyle Lowry. And we were talking about. First of all, the defensive mindset, right? I've played against a lot of teams in which it would be very hard to score 50 points. Toronto Raptors are one of them. Nick Nurse is going to box and one you. He's going to do a triangle and two. They're going to trap your ball screens. I played against the Suns a couple nights ago. They trapped almost all my ball screens, handoffs, boxes and elbows. It's very, very hard to score 50 points. I watched this game. Orlando was in a drop for the most part. Uh, Showing light doubles, you know, hedging hard, things of that nature. But for the most part... They just kind of let him go. Obviously, it helps when you got KD out there. But the strategy was to get Kyrie the ball, obviously, once he got hot. But other guys were still scoring. KD still had 19. The, the, the offense was flowing. They ended up scoring 150 points, and he didn't play the last eight minutes of the game. So that kind of tells you how good they are from an offensive standpoint and how well their team is flowing. They could have force-fed him and, and allowed him to get 80 points, but they didn't do that. And, and I think that's the difference in how a lot of players have done it historically and what we're kind of seeing with high school AAU and college where either guys are cherry picking or things of that nature. But what's really impressive with not only Cat, obviously Dame's done it, Clay's done it, Kyrie is the efficiency. You know, he scored 60 points, shooting 64% from the field, over 67% from three. High levels of shot making ability being displayed. The degree of difficulty in which he plays the game is unlike anything we've seen. Getting to the midi, obviously getting to the rim, doing those different types of things. And I think based on what I've seen throughout my career, I have two things to say. Cat is arguably the best shooting big man we've ever seen. Obviously, Dirk Nowinski comes to mind. Hall of Famer won a championship 50-40-90 consistently. Cat's going to be close to doing 50-40-90 this year. And if he doesn't, I'm sure he'll do it in, in years to come. But the way he shoots from mid-range, the way he shoots from three, he got an off-the-dribble game. He could finish around the basket. He's a special, special talent. And I have to say this because he did beat me in a three-point contest this past season. That kind of shows you how great of a shooter he truly is to be a shooter of my caliber. Looking at Kyrie, I think it's fair to say that he is arguably, and I'm going to argue on his behalf, the most skilled player I've ever played against and arguably the most skilled player that's ever played the game. And when I talk about skill, I want to like really explain this to my listeners for a second to like really kind of grasp what I'm talking about. Some people think that skill is considered shooting, ball handling, things of that nature. Obviously, Kyrie can shoot. Obviously, he can dribble. He has those types of skills. But most of the skills that he has are skills that he had to work on, skills that he had to kind of hone in on and expand upon. He obviously is a wizard with the ball. He's obviously a basketball savant, and I don't use that term lightly at all. The way he plays the game from a technical approach standpoint, like 
His technique, his efficiency, in and out of his moves, being able to stay low, the angles he takes on his drives towards the basket, how he's able to use the backboard, how he's able to pump fake, how he's able to pivot, his footwork. It's basketball poetry. It's poetry in motion. And these are skills that he's had to hone in on and master. And he's mastered all levels of the floor, all aspects of the game. Most players are specialty players, right? You have your catch-and-shoot guys. You have your defenders. You have guys that can just set screens. You have guys that can just dribble. You have guys that can only score in the paint. You have guys that can't make free throws. You have guys that can't make threes. You have bigs that are just there, and you have bigs that are there with skill. Kyrie can run an offense. He can go score. He can post up mid-post. He has an isolation game. He has a counter to every counter. He has a step back. He has a hesitation. He can finish with his left hand. He can finish with his right hand. He has a floater. He makes free throws. He can score in transition. He has mastered every aspect of this game. And I think that's a skill in itself. And the fact that he's able to do these things at 6'3 or shorter. And I know we've talked about it a lot, right? Like, Some players, some people are saying like he's sitting out games, right? So he's fresh. He's doing this. He's doing that. And that's true. He is sitting out games, so he is fresh. He's only traveling. He's not playing games at home. But from a basketball rhythm standpoint, it is hard to take time off like that. And let's say your team has a three-game homestand and you can't play in games. And then you go on a road trip and you have to play in the game. Your basketball timing and basketball rhythm is a little different when you're only practicing and working out versus playing in the game. So the fact that he's doing this, I think Jay Will talked about it. It's supreme skill, supreme focus, supreme confidence, all those things. But his skill set and ability to kind of adapt on the fly and his creativity is unlike anything we'll ever see. I I said it all the time. He's like Picasso, right? There's a lot of great paintings out there that you may like and that you may buy, but the price point on those paintings is different. And the price point for a mission to a Brooklyn Nets game to see him play is different. It should be more expensive because it's unlike anything that you'll ever see because of his skill set. Obviously, KD's there. Obviously, it's New York City. It's, it's, it's bright lights, big city, all those things. But his skill set is special. And there's a lot of good guards, the Steph Curry's of the world, Damon Lillard's of the world. Go on. I got skill. There's a lot of guys that have skill. But his shit is different. And as a player who plays in the league, as a player who watches, as a player who mastered his craft and like how I play is predicated on skill. It's predicated on thousands and thousands of hours of breaking down film and figuring out how to master levels on the court. I tip my cap to him. And I know a lot of other NBA players who are great Hall of Famers who would say the same thing, Hall of Famers who are saying the same thing. What he does, a lot of is is hard work and talent. It's God-given, but he is working and improving at a level, at a rate in which I don't think we'll ever see. Um, and I and I just I just had to say that because he is special. Kai has the juice. There are 11 active players who have scored 60 points. Harden's done it four times. Dame three, Cat, Kyrie, Melo, Steph, Booker, Bron, Tatum, Clay, and Kemba. The next three guys I think to join that list will be Luca, Trey, and Giannis. Quickly on why. Giannis is obviously strong. He's efficient. He's effective. He gave Bron about 45 on 15 or 16 shots. He averaged 11 free throws a game. He scored 50 in a finals elimination game where he made all but one free throw. I think it's just only a matter of time before he scores 60, especially if it's a close game. He's going to have 10 dunks. He's probably going to hit some threes, get some free throws, make a couple middies, and he'll be able to get 60 easy. Trey Young is an assassin. He recently had over 30 and a quarter or 30 and a half. Um, He can shoot from 35 feet out. 
He knows how to get fouled. He has a paint game. He has a floater game. I think it's only a matter of time before he goes bonkers. And then Luca scores in bunches. Obviously, he likes to pass, but he's a matchup problem because he can post up. He has a mid-range game, and he has a high, high, high usage rate. In order for you to score 50 or 60, you got to have a high usage rate. You got to be efficient. And you got to be able to score at multiple levels or have a skill that's unlike anything anyone's ever seen. Clay Thompson, for instance, a skill unlike anything everyone's ever seen, can shoot the ball better than most, can move without the ball. He's tall, high release point, and when he gets hot, there's no stopping him. So I think those three players are next in line to score 60 points. Could be someone else. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. Pull up or dish, the March Madness edition. Since the tournament starts this week, I have to bring up the fact that my 10 year anniversary of upsetting Duke is this year. I am pulling up on Lehigh beating Duke in 2012 being the highlight of my career only because that was the start of everything, right? Like, unless you really watched and followed mid-major basketball and lived in the Valley, you really weren't aware of who I was. Scouts were aware of who I was because that's their job to study basketball and figure out like potential prospects. But the win against Duke kind of put me on the main stage. It gave me a chance to play against a bunch of NBA players. It gave me a chance to play against a historically relevant team from arguably the greatest college coach of all time and arguably the most fun stage of college sports, the NCAA tournament. So you kind of put all those things together with me playing well in that game, upsetting a team that we probably shouldn't have beat. Uh, I think that put me in a different type of light. That put me on the pedestal, so to speak, in terms of how I'm viewed, not only by my peers, but how I was viewed by scouts. They thought, wow, this kid is good. He can, he can make his teammates better. He can make himself better. He played well on a big stage in a game in which I, I could have played poorly in, and I would have solely been judged on how I played. They knew the stakes were high, and historically I've performed well when the lights shine the brightest, that's when I kind of rise to the occasion because of how I'm wired and what I've come from. I've always relished those opportunities to really kind of put a stamp on who I am as a player and what I'm known for. And that was one of those moments. But looking back on it, it does have a new meaning for me. I don't think I truly understood, you know, the moment. You know what I mean? I was just a younger kid playing an NCAA tournament, like understanding that if I play well, I'll probably get drafted. If I don't, you know, maybe I I come back to school for another year and try all over again or I end up overseas. But the moment now, it seems bigger because of where I'm at today, what I've been able to experience, how people kind of reference that moment over and over again, restaurants, a lot of North Carolina alumni, people who hate Duke, NBA scouts, younger players in the league. They're like, yo, I remember you had the short haircut. You know what I'm saying? So like, I think that's really prevalent around the league in, in terms of how people remember me. And I think... What sticks out to me most about that night is probably centered around me going back and watching, you know, the stance, right? Like watching how people kind of reacted as I'm scoring, listening to the announcers. Bang! Like those types of moments. I think it's really cool because when you're in the moment and you're hooping, like you realize the score is going back and forth. You realize the importance of certain possessions. I remember the play calls. I remember like what I'm saying in the huddles in the locker room. But then like to watch it and then see people's reactions to it is always really cool. And I think the cool part about that night is, I think I told this story a lot of times. I told our team before the game, I said, after we win, don't be celebrating like y'all surprised. Like we expected to be here. We expect to win and compete. And I want people to understand that. Like in our minds, obviously it's a big upset, but to us, like we felt like we were good enough. And I think it's cool to see like we, we win, the horn goes off and like our team is celebrating. I'm like, yo, y'all chill. Like remember what I said? Like I said, we were supposed to win. 
And I always thought that was cool. And then the, the second part is having to talk to Charles Barkley and them post game and like them talking about the upset and how I'm going on to play Xavier and how like I'm one of the best players in the country. And it was funny like to be able to hear someone else say it, you know, a Hall of Famer say like, yeah, you're one of the best players in the country. You're a future NBA player because I had always thought it, right? I had always dreamt it. I had always worked towards it. And now they were kind of speaking like what I always thought was my reality into my new existence. So I thought that was really cool how I was able to go through that. And I do go back and watch the highlights from time to time, but it's more so to see how my game has changed and evolved, how my body has changed and evolved, and yet how similar it still is. The movement, the crossovers, the hesitations, the floaters. I was finishing with my left hand early on. I got a fast break dunk. A lot of, a lot of my movement now is more crisp. It's more thought out. It's more methodical. Before, I was more play style, like a lot of loose handle, probably over dribbling. I still over dribble a little bit at times, but now it's more like get to my spots, not as exaggerated on my crossovers. Before I had the big, big AI cross, and now it's more hones, like a Tim Hardaway between cross or pat, 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 like between, 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 big cross. So it's cool to kind of see how my game has evolved and how technically sound I am in my movement standpoint. I am definitely excited about seeing players in this upcoming tournament, although I don't watch a lot of college basketball, I follow some of the names. Um, a lot of our players in the NBA went to a lot of these universities and they're betting on the games or um, talking about players, so to speak. Probably shouldn't say they're betting on the games, but you know, putting money in a pool in order to celebrate the NCAA tournament like everyone else. Um, Chet, the big kid from Gonzaga, I've been watching him a little bit. He's, he's a guy that's going to be a lottery pick, special. Seven foot one, can dribble, can shoot. Got to put some weight on, obviously, but he's got the it factor. Jabari Smith may arguably be the best NBA prospect in this draft. A lot of people are high on him. He's skilled. He can shoot. He can block shots. He can defend one through four. Probably can play some five in the league once he gets a little bit stronger. Paolo, uh, the big kid uh, at Duke. He's a Seattle native. Very skilled, strong, strong build. I've heard some comparisons to the likes of Mello and guys of that nature. I'm not sure if he's a Mello, but he's skilled. He's big. He's strong. And he has an NBA body. can compete right away. Gene and Ivy, I've watched a lot of him. I like his game. Uh, he gets up and down. He can handle the ball. They play in some point guard. Long, big, strong wing. Got some D-Wade to him. Can dunk on you. Can finish around the basket. Got a midi. I'm really excited about, you know, Obviously, some potential upsets that are going to happen, but I love to watch, you know, once you get to the Sweet 16, you kind of see the cream rise to the crop and like guys kind of separate themselves from others and really see who can play on the biggest stage. And I think that's what I'm really looking forward to. Now it's time for Got the Dub, Take the L. The dub of the week goes to the big men for sure, undoubtedly so. There's a crazy, crazy race right now between the Joker and Embiid, as well as Giannis. Giannis is obviously the dark horse, if you will. Like He, he probably uh, will steal votes from Joker and Embiid and kind of make it more balanced, like most elections. The stats are what they are, so I'll start with the leading scorer in the NBA, Joel Embiid. He's averaging 29.9 points per game, just call it 30, 11 rebounds, 4 assists. 55 games, 55 starts, efficiencies 30, 33, 48 from the field, 36 from 382 from the line. Only playing 33 minutes a game, pretty impressive stuff. His team is doing well. 
Giannis, 29.7 points per game, 11.5 rebounds, 5.9 assists, 58 games played, 58 games started, 34.8 efficiency, 54.8 from the field, 30 from three, 72 from the line. Very good player in his own right. The guy I think will win the MVP, Nikola Jokic, 26 points per game, 13.8 rebounds, which is wild, 8.1 assists, 62 games played, 62 games started, 33 minutes per game. He's on pace to break the efficiency record, 37.7 efficiency, 57 from the field, 35 from 380 from the line. Can't go wrong with any of these players, first of all, but I think the fact that this will be the second year in a row, basically a big man wins it, kind of shows you where the league is going. Obviously, as a guard, you still feel like it's a guard-dominated league, but I think this is a credit to the big men and how their skills have evolved. Embiid is a little bit of everything, right? He got some Shaq to him. He got some Kobe to him. He's got footwork. He's got some Hakeem to him. He can make free throws, make threes, make his teammates better. Giannis is a freak, right? Like, he can block shots. He can switch out on guys. He can do a lot of different things. And the Joker is just unlike anything we've seen. He has vision. He has a presence about him. He knows how to get to the free throw line. He can make threes. I think he scored, what, 30 points on us in the fourth quarter in overtime? Like, the the things he's able to do on the court are unbelievable. And he's very unassuming, which is even crazier to think about. Like, when you look at him, you wouldn't say, like, that's a two-time MVP. (laughs) But that's a two-time MVP, if you know what I mean. So I'm I'm really excited about the future of the NBA. I'm I'm excited about the future of, of European sports, European basketball in general. There's a lot of players, you know, not only from Europe, but from Africa and beyond that are getting a chance to to show their talent, show their skills, and come over to the NBA. And it's making our game a better place. It's obviously bringing more fandom to our sport and really showing how global this game is. If I had to pick the fate of the world on the line and rank these big men, I wouldn't do it. I would let the world in. But if I really, really had to do it, I would go Giannis and then pick of the litter. I would pick Giannis first. For this reason. Obviously, he's in my draft class. I have a draft class bias. He's already won a championship. He showed that he's durable. He showed that he can deliver on the big stage. He showed that he can win big games when you need him to. And he showed that he's clutch. And he's already won multiple MVPs, I presume. Defensive player of the year. Finals MVP. So you can't argue his greatness. From there, it's tough. It's like like picking... French fries versus tater tots versus hash browns versus curly fries. Like, they're all great. They're all good. There is no wrong answer. For MVP this season, I said the Joker. I think he's going to win it because his stats are unbelievable. But looking at the breakdown, Embiid's played 55 games this year. Joker has played 62 So it's not a big discrepancy in games played this year, whereas in past years you would say, like, is Embiid as durable? Does he play as many games as the others? Like You use those types of excuses. Like, it's very, very close. Giannis has played three more games and started in three more games than him, so it's close this year. So you can't use that as an excuse. But I'm going to say Joker's win the MVP. If I had to pick for one game, I would take Embiid. But that doesn't mean that I'm right. That's just my my bias, my opinion. But I think that Joker deserves the MVP this season. I think he'll probably win it. But Giannis is the sleeper. Giannis' team is very good. He could win back-to-back. His numbers are very similar to previous years in which he has won MVP. That's my stance, and I'm sticking to it. The L of the week is the Cowboys. Free agency has been dope, by the way. A lot of movement. Baker's written a letter about what could be his last days in Cleveland. 
big Browns fan. So not sure what's going to happen there, but hopefully things turn out to be the way they should for our team and for all the players involved. I wish them nothing but the best if they are staying and if they are leaving. But the Cowboys situation was wild. Randy Gregory, defensive end, guy who's playing extremely well and has battled some things throughout his career, but has now righted his wrongs and has landed a huge payday. But the situation took a turn for the funnier when he agreed to terms with the Cowboys. Cowboys social media posted that he agreed to, I believe, a five-year $70 million deal. I think the Cowboys, there was some some confusion or whatever. He ends up making a U-turn. And agrees to a five-year, $70 million deal with the Broncos. I just thought it was really funny how they had the graphic up and they had the cash and he was flexing his Cowboys uniform. And then he had to change that uh, to a, a Broncos background saying that he actually signed with the Broncos. So a really, really funny situation in which I don't know what happened with the deal. Um, the talking points obviously probably weren't aligned the way they should have been. Uh, maybe there wasn't enough guaranteed money. Maybe the bonus structures in the contract weren't the way they thought they should be. But needless to say, he's getting paid and he's going to Denver. And I'm happy for him. The final segment of the Pull Up Pod is a segment that we created not too long ago. And it's people aren't talking about blank. And right now, I'm going to talk about the Warriors. But people aren't talking about how Steve Kerr will allocate and cut minutes in the playoffs. I know my producer is a big, big Warrior fan, so he's going to really enjoy this segment. The Warriors are in a great spot, by the way, if I do say so myself. Draymond obviously returned. He was out for 32 games with a back injury. Um, he looked great. They played extremely well. Steph looked like his best self. Clay, the offense was flowing and humming. It had been a very long time since they had been able to play together with the three of them. And I, I, I feel like the chemistry, the continuity, the happiness, everything was there. But obviously, that changes things for them. That changes their rotation. That changes the way this team will look in the playoffs. When healthy, they conceivably have 14 to 15 guys that could have a legitimate case to get minutes in the playoffs. For those that don't know, the roster is very deep. They've been able to win games without Draymond. They've been able to win games all season without Klay Thompson. And the likes of Jordan Poole, among many others, have stepped up. But I think it's not really about the rotation throughout the game. In the playoffs, it's about adjustments. It's about role players stepping up. It's about star players obviously delivering in the clutch. But it's more so about the chess match that happens the last two to five minutes. The last two minutes of a game, it's generally close in the playoffs. It's a one-possession, two-possession, three-possession game. Free throws, deflections, offensive rebounds. Those things really matter. But it's also the substitution patterns that matter and who you have out there. And I think the Warriors are in a position now where they're going to have to finish games with, obviously, Steph Curry. Obviously, Klay Thompson. Obviously, Draymond Green. I say those players only to say that that's the core of the team and has always been the core of the team. Wiggins is an all-star. He's a guy that plays extremely well. However, you have Jordan Poole here, and I think you have to figure out how to get him minutes. He's proven that he can make shots. He's proven that he can kind of create in the offensive flow. He's become more like a warrior player, and by that I mean understanding the flow of the game, understanding how to screen, how to move without the ball. He's playing more selfless, and he's showing that he's willing to become one of them, and they're starting to trust him. Steph has passing the ball down the stretch of games. Obviously, he gets double teamed a lot, and Poole has delivered. I think he scored 20-plus points in, in five straight games efficiently and effectively, distributing the ball, doing all those things. Shooting is a priority in playoffs, but defense is also a priority, so I think they'll have to balance both, which is why I also think that Dre will be finishing games. When I say Dre, I'm talking about Andre Iguodala. 
Draymond Green is obviously going to be finishing games. They need any guards one through five. Extremely important. But I think they signed Andre Iguodala for a reason. You need the experience. You need his expertise. You need the comfort that he brings. And generally speaking, the chemistry, the cohesiveness is going to be there because he's a proven player who has done it before. And historically, coaches trust veteran players. They love veteran players. They feel like they can depend on them. They know they're not going to make those small mistakes that rookies make. And Dre has hit big shots in big games and big moments. And oh, by the way, he has a finals MVP. So I think it's only a matter of time before obviously he returns, but it's also a matter of time before they're finishing games with him out there. And if I said that Draymond Green's going to be out there, Clay's going to be out there, and Steph's going to be out there, that means there's two spots left. So that means Wiggins is in or Wiggins is out. And that means Looney is out. So that brings Dre to the fold, Andre Udala, and that brings Jordan Poole to the fold. So now they'll kind of play with the minutes and figure out who's hot and who's not. And I think that's how they'll decide those last two roster spots, starter spots for finishing games. And this isn't a slight against Moody and Kaminga. I'm a big Moody and Kaminga fan. I think there's a bright future for Kaminga. He's athletic. He's explosive. He's shown the ability to be a knockdown threes, which would be important in the playoffs. Moody is just a really smart, heady player, plays the game the right way has blended in, has started some games, has come off the bench in some games. I just think the Warriors have so much depth and they're going to rely on a lot of the veterans to finish games. These young players will have a chance to impact moments throughout the series. They'll come in depending upon matchups, depending upon who they're playing. I know a lot of coaches love to play young guys at home versus on the road. All those things will kind of play a factor throughout the playoffs. But I think that when it's winning time down the stretch of games, they're going to go with their bread and butter. Normally, I would cue the wine music, but as I'm coming off of COVID, I haven't been drinking. I've been on medication, and it doesn't really mix well. I care about my kidneys. So I will have a wine update for you and a wine segment on the next pull-up pod. As always, be sure to follow the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your shows. Tell a friend to tell a friend. And hit the show up on social at Pull Up Pod on Twitter and Instagram. We are always posting fresh content all season long. And as the saying goes... Don't forget to pull up.